Hello, everybody, and welcome to the AgroInnovations.com podcast, where we deal with all things related and debated in agriculture, from appropriate technology to fair trade to globalization and organics. Today, we have with us Dr. Walter J. Kaiser, retired plant pathologist with over 40 years of experience. All this month, we'll be focusing on one of the key food security issues of our day, agricultural biodiversity. Dr. Kaiser will give us his perspective on our declining genetic resource base. So stick with us. Walter Kaiser is coming up next on the Agronovations Podcast. Thanks for joining us, folks. We're here. We have on the line with us today Dr. Walter J. Kaiser, plant pathologist with over 40 years of experience in the field. And today we'll be talking about a number of different things with Dr. Kaiser. Walter, why don't you start by talking about some of your personal history? Okay. I, I started my university education uh, in 1955 at the University of California, Berkeley. I was in forestry. I graduated in 1959 in forestry and then went into plant pathology at UC Berkeley, okay. where I got my Ph.D. in plant pathology. After that, in 1963, I took a job with the United Fruit Company in La Lima, Honduras, where I was working on diseases of banana. I worked there for about two and a half, three years, and then I joined the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the Agricultural Research Service, on a project in Iran called the, uh, the name of the project was the Food Legume Improvement Project, for Iran and other countries in the Middle East. It was funded by USAID, the Agency for International Development, and uh, we worked on edible legumes, crops like beans, chickpeas, lentils, cow peas, peas, mung beans, faba beans. And uh, I worked on the diseases of these crops. I stayed in Iran for uh, six years from 1965 until 1971. And after, in 1970, late 71, I was transferred by the U.S. Department of Agriculture to Puerto Rico, where I worked at the uh, USDA uh, Federal Experiment Station in Mayaguez. And again, I was working on food legumes, particularly beans and cowpeas for Puerto Rico and other countries in the Caribbean and Central America. So I had an an opportunity to travel in uh, the Caribbean and Central uh, America with regard to the work I was doing. From there, I was transferred again by the U.S. Department of Agriculture to Kenya, East Africa, where I was uh, in charge of the uh, plant quarantine station at the large experiment station at Maguga, Kenya, not too far from, from Nairobi. And it was part of the East African community at that time, which was a partnership between Kenya, Tanzania, and Uganda. So I had a, an opportunity to travel, especially in throughout Kenya and Tanzania, with regard to the plant quarantine work, diseases of plants, that the type of thing that I was doing. Uh, in 1978, I was transferred once again by the U.S. 
Department of Agriculture, Agriculture to uh, Pullman, Washington, Washington State University, hmm. where I was uh, associated with the National Plant Germplasm System. At Pullman, there was a, a station called the Regional Plant Introduction Station, and this was part of the National Plant Germplasm System. And we were, uh, at this station, we stored seeds of uh, several thousand species of plants, and my work was, was looking at the disease situation on uh, this plant germplasm, especially when it was planted out in the field for an increase, because periodically you had to re-increase the seeds uh, as, as their viability decreased, and you sent out seeds to, to uh, uh, scientists worldwide. So I did a lot of work on, on different uh, plants, but especially food legumes. And I also got involved working on the diseases of chickpeas, lentils, and peas, which are very important crops in the Palouse region of eastern Washington, northern Idaho. Pullman is, is located in the Palouse area. And so, yeah, I did a lot of, of, of work on uh, uh, chickpeas especially. One disease in particular, Ascochyta blight. Mm -hmm. And with my association with Ascochyta blight, I had an opportunity to, to travel to different countries, uh, looking at the disease situation, collecting plant germplasm. This is when I started uh, going overseas to collect plants of different species for the National Plant Germplasm System. And I'm still continuing this type of work with some of my former colleagues at Washington State University. In uh, January of, of 1998, I retired when I turned 60 years old, and I had some 32-plus years with the U.S. government. And within six months, I was uh, in uh, a Peace Corps trainee in Bolivia, in Cochabamba. Right. And then I spent, oh, some three and a half years as a Peace Corps volunteer in Bolivia, and I was uh, located in the southern city of Sucre. And I was associated with the one of the oldest universities in the Americas, uh, the, the Universidad de uh, uh, San Francisco Javier de Chuquisaca. And this university was established by the Spaniards in 1624, so it's a very old university. Yeah. And so... During my time uh, as a Peace Corps volunteer, I had a chance to, to travel extensively in uh, Bolivia as a roving plant doctor, Dr. Ambulante, to help Peace Corps volunteers, farmers, and uh, extension people with disease and pest problems uh, that, are, that they encountered in, in their, their sites. And uh, when I finished Peace Corps in December of, of uh, 2001, I returned to the U.S. and decided to, to live in Boise, Idaho, which is in southern Idaho. So, Walter, you, obviously you've had years of experience in the field of plant pathology. You've been all over the world. Um, you've yes. worked nationally. You've worked internationally on several different continents. What have you seen um, in terms of changes in the field of plant pathology? Well, uh, the changes, a lot of, you know, one thing I noticed is that in some countries, it's much more difficult getting into some of these countries nowadays. Like in the Middle East, I used to travel a lot. When I was located in Iran, I traveled throughout the Middle East. And uh, now, this is uh, out of the question uh, in, in most countries in the Middle East. 
I've had a chance to go to Armenia and the Republic of Georgia in the last three or four years to collect plant germplasm. And there, again, I was looking at for diseases of plants. So in certain areas, it's yeah, you can still get in and do certain types of work. Now, with regard to the types of, of work that is being done, uh, a lot of the, the, the uh, curricula in, in plant pathology, say, at Washington State University, is now geared to molecular uh, studies, mm-hmm. and which means that younger plant pathologists don't get in the field as much as I did. I'm an applied plant pathologist. If I need to do some work that's more technical, I work with someone at, uh, say, Washington State or elsewhere who has the knowledge. I can do the field work. They can do a lot of this uh, uh, biotech work that, yeah. that uh, is being done now. And so that's one thing I, I see is, is you have a lot more uh, plant pathologists who are trained in the molecular area. So what are the and consequences of uh, that focus more on laboratory type work as opposed to field work? Well, you're going to have uh, eventually that you won't have very many people who can go out and diagnose plant diseases like I do. Uh, and and uh, so we still have, have, have some of, of this type of person like myself who goes out and, and can do the field work and work with others in the lab. But uh, there's a lot more emphasis in, in the molecular area now than, than uh, say, five or ten years ago. You know, uh, it's, when I was at Washington State, I built up a collection of, of different types of ascochytas, uh, this group of fungi, that cause a lot of problems in many different crops, especially the legumes. And this collection, I had, say, on chickpeas, 600 uh, different uh, uh, isolates from all over the world. And this collection now is very valuable. Right. Because now the molecular people can go in and start using these things and to, to find out uh, a lot of information and, and similarities between these different ascochytas from, say, lentil, chickpea, faba bean, and pea. And so, yeah, but you need these collections. And, and uh, if you're sitting in your lab, you're not going to get these collections. You've got to be out in the field. Right, like and I a, was. in a lot of cases, I'm sure that, you know, with the case of Ascochyta, a dedicated plant pathologist like yourself over decades built the collection up, whereas okay. in other cases, cases, we might not have such collections of, of, of the no. disease. No, but when I was in Bolivia, I was very keen on, on, on collecting, say, Ascochyta, because we found Ascochyta on chickpea for the first time in uh, uh, countries of Latin America. And, and uh, several other diseases uh, we encountered were new to Bolivia, hadn't been reported before. And uh, so this is, this is the type of thing that, that uh, you know, one who is working in these countries, doing applied work, can do, is collect these fungi, send them to those who are interested uh, in the U.S. or elsewhere. I also send fungi to other countries, to people who are working with a certain group. And so this definitely helps in their studies of diversity of these different pathogens. Right. Because it's, it's nice to have a, a big collection when you're doing this type of work. So let me ask you, Walter, what have been sure. some of the most uh, critical constraints to crop production and agricultural sustainability that you've seen in the field? One, let's see, one thing is these large, you know, getting down with, with the number of varieties that are being grown. Uh, like with wheat, you may have large areas grown to one variety that produces high yields, maybe the quality is very good, 
But this also jeopardizes problems with certain diseases that may occur. Uh, this this is, is occurring more and more uh, in, in, in different areas. Now we have some of these uh, 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 plants that are being genetically engineered and so forth, and some countries are prohibiting, uh, you know, growing this type of, of, of crop. And Europe is, is, a, is, a, is a good example of this right now. So this is some things that have changed in, 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 in recent years. The introduction of certain diseases has been a problem. Right. Like with soybeans. They, they, uh, the soybean rust uh, entered uh, the U.S. a few years ago, and it's causing a lot of problems now. These are some of the things that, that I've noticed. Right now, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of out of the field, you know, and I'm, so I'm not uh, at the university all the time. Right, but but I still think that you would have a good sense of, you know, to to address the question of what are some of the biggest threats facing our food security, both nationally and globally. I mean, there's a lot of talk of terrorism. Um, I'm not sure if, if that's as big a threat as it's made out to be in the media. I know that there there's there's some plant pathologists who are, are you know, getting involved in this area of, of bioterrorism with, with plants. You know, I, I'm not, it, it's not going to be as easy as with certain other, you know, types of, of, bio, of terrorism uh, in, in getting, say, an epidemic going or causing widespread destruction of right. certain crops. It's, I, I'm not that familiar with some of these things that are, that are you know, in, involved, but uh, it's not going to be that easy. No, I don't think so. No. So, but where? So, is are we are we focused our attention on the wrong area? I mean, are the threats more in loss of biodiversity and uh, you know the risks of monoculture yeah. and industrial agriculture? Well, biodiversity. Yes, there's a, definitely a loss of, of biodiversity. Yes, even in our country here. I uh, last two years ago. No, last it was last year. I, I, I went collecting with some of our some of my colleagues for wild onions in southern in, in the southern part of, of Idaho, going through this high desert area called the Owahis. It goes from eastern Idaho all the way into Oregon. And we were looking for one species in particular. Uh-huh. And in some areas we noticed, you know, uh, overgrazing, this type of thing ruined the habitat for, 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 for this, these wild onions and other crops, too. Wildfires in some of these areas has caused widespread destruction in the last few years right. in Idaho and surrounding uh, states. Loss of biodiversity is, 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 I see, a big, big problem. What, what else have why... you seen in that regard, not only in the United States, but in your international work? Oh, goodness gracious. When we were in the Republic of Georgia, which was a former... Republic in the in the Soviet Union gained its freedom when the Soviet Union broke up in 1991. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, the, one of the biggest problems we noticed was overgrazing. It was terrible. You go into areas and and areas were devastated. Yeah. And where in the past they had noted this type of crop was here, you could find this, uh, say chickpea or this lentil, nothing. Weeds, because when you when you destroy this the pastures and so forth. What comes in are some of these weeds, yeah. some of the same weeds that are a big problem right here in the U.S., mm -hmm. like knapweed, yeah. uh, rush skeleton weed, this type of thing. 
maybe you yeah. could you could talk about the value of biodiversity from the perspective of a plant pathologist. Maybe some of the people listening don't actually even realize why it's so important. Uh, well, it, it, with regard to, to say, uh, a crop that I'm very familiar with, chickpeas, uh, there are a number, there's, there's the main cultivated uh, chickpea, which in, in some areas they call garbanzos. Mm-hmm. And uh, this uh, species, the, the, the cultivated chickpea, is very susceptible, susceptible to a number of, of diseases. And uh, in some well, this is one reason why some of these collections that we have of chickpeas and different species of chickpeas, like at Washington State University, the project with which I was associated, the Regional Plant Introduction Station, has a huge collection of, of uh, the, the, the genus Sicer with different species, including a large collection of the cultivated chickpea. But a lot of this, this material, the, the wild species, is very important to some of these plant breeders at Washington State University and elsewhere who can make use of this wild germplasm to incorporate it into the cultivated chickpea to develop varieties that might have resistance to cold or to ascochyta blight or will, will produce larger seed, uh, will, will grow in areas that are more saline, this type of thing. Crop diversity is so important in, in, in uh, in, in maintaining uh, a crop that, that you can you can work with in breeding and so forth to 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 uh, uh, have the species or or the, say the chickpea do very well in certain areas. Fifteen species of plants account for about ninety percent of our food supply worldwide. Tens of perhaps tens of thousands of species have been domesticated throughout the history of agriculture. Um, what does that mean to you? That we're losing uh, a lot of, of diversity, a great deal. Uh, one example, in, in, uh, in Turkey, uh, a number of collections have been made, explorations in Turkey, going back uh, 60 years or so. Jack Harlan started in, in, in the late 1940s collecting uh, species of wheat, barley, lentils, and many other crops back then and bringing, you know, sending that material back to the U.S. and, and this material is in the, the uh, different collections in the National Plant Germplasm System and being used by breeders worldwide. But now in some of these areas in, in Turkey, you go to these areas, you can't find this material anymore. It's no longer available. Mm-hmm. It's, one problem in Turkey also is overgrazing. Or they're, they're going in and, 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 and growing, say, this improved wheat varieties. You don't right. have one variety in an area where they used to have maybe 50, something like that. So, yes, a, a loss, loss of, of, of uh, diversity. Growing crops, uh, say, one variety over larger areas. And, and uh, yeah, this, this is going to be, could be a problem in, in, in the future. But that's why these collections we have in the U.S., that are being maintained by the National Plant Germplasm System is extremely important because in some of these areas we're not able to go in and, and, and collect material anymore. Mm-hmm. The Middle East is a good example right now. Right. And this is a gold mine for for many different plant species that had their origin in the Middle East. So, what would you say are uh, some of the things that we can do 
both in terms of policy and as individuals to sort of stave off this massive loss of biodiversity? Well, one thing is to support the National Plant Germplasm System. You know, this system, uh, it it maintains thousands of plant species. And you have centers located uh, like with the regional stations. There's one in Pullman, Washington, Griffin, Georgia, uh, Geneva, New York, and Ames, Iowa. And they maintain germplasm uh, of, of seeds, mainly seeds, of crops that fairly, do fairly well in the area uh, of these stations, you know, for the environmental conditions and so forth. And, uh, but right now, uh, I, I was just, when I was at Pullman, Washington, visiting uh, my colleagues at the Regional Plant Introduction Station, their budget's being cut. And uh, which means they, they, they're not going to be able to do as much in the, in the maintenance of this material that they have there. Periodically, you have to grow out this material, and that takes large areas of land. Right. And uh, it takes a lot of money. It's, it's very costly when you're, when you're taking care of these different lines, and each one you want to keep separate. You don't mm-hmm. want to mix these different lines. Right. And, and this takes a lot of work, maintaining a, a, you know, a sufficient budget for these for the National Plant Germplasm System, in my opinion, is extremely important. Is there anything that backyard gardeners and small-scale farmers can do to help? Well, you know, a lot, there's, there's a lot of interest in heirloom varieties. And, and uh, so a lot, I know uh, my colleagues uh, who are master gardeners in, 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 in the region around Boise uh, are, are cultivating uh, uh, different heirloom varieties, not only, say, say like tomatoes or melons. What exactly is an heirloom Pepper. variety? This is an old variety that, that, that might go back, uh, say, 100 years and, uh, or more. Mm-hmm. And uh, fortunately, some of the seed has been maintained, uh, say, at experiment stations or in a national plant germplasm system. And now people are, are, have a big interest in, in, in growing a lot of these heirloom varieties, which have you know, uh, certain characteristics uh, that might be desirable. And so... There's a lot of interest in this, and now people can start buying seed uh, from companies that uh, have, uh, you know, are selling heirloom varieties. Through your career, you've been mostly a plant pathologist, but you also have interest in other areas, um, namely cultivating edible mushrooms. Could you talk a little yeah. bit about your work in that area? Well, uh, my interest in, in cultivating edible mushrooms uh, came from the time I was in Bolivia. Uh, when a student is in the, the faculty of agronomy at the University of San Francisco Javier, the Chukisaka, they they have to do a thesis when they finish their coursework, and so I had a couple of students working with me, and one in particular was interested in cultivating edible mushrooms, and prior to that time, I didn't have much experience working, uh, you know, cultivating edible mushrooms, and so. Uh, I was gonna. I extended one year with Peace Corps, which meant they gave me a home leave, so I had a chance to go back uh, to the U.S. and I went to Washington State University, where I worked previously, mm-hmm. and I talked to the fellow who had replaced me, my position, and he was a mycologist, and I said, "Hey, Frank, uh, uh, I have a student in in Bolivia who's interested in, in growing cultivated mushrooms." And I said, what can I do? Where can I get cultures and so forth? He said, come with me. We'll go to Safeway and IGA, that's another supermarket, and we'll buy some of these mushrooms that they're selling, which we did. Okay. We bought four, inc- 
including the oyster mushroom, okay. which, which was fortunate. Took them back to the lab. I made cultures of these on agar media, okay. plastic petri dishes, sealed them with parafilm, and took them back with me to Bolivia. Talk about that fortunate. process of making the cultures. You, you have to have sterile conditions, isn't that so? Yeah, okay. We had a, a laminar flow hood, which is a, a, an enclosed area where, where sterile air is blowing out of the laminar flow. So you can work in there in a fairly, you know, a sterile atmosphere. So you take pieces of tissue from the, from the mushroom and, and place it in a solution of Clorox, about a 10% solution of, of uh, uh, concentrated Clorox. Let it sit in the, in the Clorox for, say, 10 minutes, then take it out, place it on uh, filter paper, and then after it drains, make small uh, pieces get, take, uh, with, with a uh, scalpel, a sterile scalpel, okay. put it on auger media, and then seal the plates. And that's what I did, and took them back to Bolivia. And sure enough, we got pure cultures of four different edible mushrooms. And the one that worked best for us uh, was the oyster mushroom, right. which occurs naturally in, in the U.S. And uh, it's a very good mushroom to eat. So what, and so what does one do once they have the, the culture to actually grow out a crop of mushrooms? Okay, what you need to do is have the culture in the culture of the mushroom that's sterile. You don't want it contaminated with bacteria or other fungi because this could pr cause problems when you try to inoculate uh, a medium, which we would do. We would have use straw, barley straw, and maybe mix it with uh, uh, coffee grounds or maybe some other uh, uh, leaves and sterilize this, uh, this medium. Mm -hmm. It has to be sterile. And at times, this is a problem in, in say, developing countries like Bolivia. Uh, fortunately, we had a large pressure cooker, and we could sterilize the, the barley straw. And once it was sterile, then we would introduce uh, the fungus, uh, which we had cultivated on seeds of, say, wheat or barley. And uh, we would take that uh, cultivated uh, medium and place it with the straw, the barley straw that we'd sterilized, mm -hmm. in a container. And uh, uh, if everything went well, the fungus would start growing and colonizing the sterile uh, barley stems. And uh, you go through a certain, it has to uh, be done uh, uh, over a period of, of, say, a month. And then after that, it needs to be exposed to, to day length, uh, light. Yeah. And... Uh, then you have to maybe open up the container, and then if conditions are, are appropriate, the fungus will start producing uh, fruiting bodies. We were successful in doing this. It's not the easiest thing to do, but we were successful on, on a number of occasions right. doing this. So what are the advantages of doing this type of thing from an agroecological perspective? Well, this is one way if you wanted to have this, uh, you know, to grow, grow this mushroom, say for commercial purposes, it, it's possible. Mm -hmm. uh, it's being done in some countries, uh, like uh, in Southeast Asia, Thailand. They're cultivating certain types of, of mushrooms, including certain species of the oyster mushroom. There are different, a number of species. And uh, this is one thing. You, you can provide uh, you know, mushrooms for sale. And uh, they're nutritious. And a lot of people you know, in, in their cultures uh, prize mushrooms and use them in their cooking. And another big advantage is they grow on agricultural wastes. 
Exactly. Yes. So um, people have grown them on logs and corn cobs and, as you mentioned, straw, manure. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's... There's a company in the, in the Pacific Northwest that sells uh, kits for different kinds of mushrooms. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you had a book, uh, Frank, on, on this. Stamets is, is the guy's name. Yeah. I believe. And, and I just received a catalog from his company. Okay. And it's amazing what he's, what he's selling there. Mm-hmm. Different uh, fungi uh, and, and how, how, you know, with these kits. And uh, you do certain things and boom, you got your mushrooms. I'm not sure if there's anything else that you want to mention about the field of pathology or, uh, you well, know, anything. a good field. That's for sure. Anything about uh, if you want to encourage anybody to get into the field or anything you want to mention about? Uh, well, you know, there's a lot of opportunity. Well, uh, for in, in a number of schools have very good departments of, of plant pathology. And uh, it, it, it... Name it, some. Uh, well, okay. Uh, the University of California has three campuses, Riverside, Berkeley, Davis. Mm-hmm. Oregon State University is another one. Washington State University. University of Wisconsin, University of Minnesota, Cornell University, North Carolina State University, Florida, University of Florida, uh, uh, University of Texas, uh, Colorado State University, Purdue, University of Illinois, Iowa State University. Good schools. Walter, I'd like to thank you for uh, being our first victim. and. Uh... <laughs> well... I hope that it, it, it'll work out uh, well for you. Frank. Thank you. It, it's been so good talking to you. Well, that does it for today's show, ladies and gentlemen. I'd like to thank you so much for joining us, and I'd like to extend our sincerest gratitude to Dr. Kaiser for being so gracious with his time. We hope you'll tune in next week as we continue this theme of agricultural biodiversity at the agroinnovations.com podcast. This podcast is produced by Agricultural Innovations Incorporated. This is Frank Aragona. Saludos. Saludos.